0: Welcome to The Church at Lake Mead, and this is our sermon podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, we wanna say thanks for stopping by and we hope to see you again soon. Here is today's message. You know, the world has been through so much, whether it's the pandemic or political upheaval, um, recessions and inflation and all the rest, we can feel very vulnerable, we can feel very afraid. But as we looked at last week, Jesus said, look, these are the beginning of the birth pains. Following Jesus in a world that's hostile to Him is gonna be difficult. And I think part of our problem is that we want so bad for things just to be perfect here on earth, but we've, we haven't been p- promised that, right? We're not promised peace now, that's our future destiny. What we're promised now is difficulty. And if we can just accept the fact that we're in a cosmic battle, right, that we're in a war, It's gonna help set us up for how to approach life. If we're not in the fight, friend, I've got scary and bad news. You might not be on the team. Are you with me on that? Because Jesus is leading an army and we're in a battle. Are you with me today? Right, that's what this is about because King Jesus is gonna win, right? And he's gonna defeat all those who stand in his way. But that needs to start with us. We need to take a big evaluation of like, man, where am I at in this? I wanna, I wanna tell you a story before we get too much into our sermon today. Uh, have you ever been in front of a judge? Have you ever been uh, in a courtroom before a judge? Uh, I wanna tell you a story. There's, <laughs> I wanna tell you a story about how I at age 22 ended up in front of a judge, all right? Maybe me bringing up this idea has triggered like some, some bad memories for some of you. And I'm really sorry if I did that this morning, but I am <laughs> 22 years old. I'm newly married actually, it's July, and I'm in a courtroom in front of a judge and I'm terrified, I'll be honest. Let me tell you how I got there. So this, uh, this truck of mine, There's a picture of my truck. Yeah, this is actually not my truck, but it's very similar to that. I couldn't find a picture of my truck. I had a lifted Yukon that um, was my pride and joy. in 1998, um, it looked almost black, but when you got closer in the light, it had like a purple hue to it. It was a sweet car, sweet truck, um, lifted truck with my pride and joy. Um, I was working for my dad in the summer and, um, he was out of town and I wanted to try to impress him. I may have told some of the story before, so if I did, I'm sorry, but I wanted to show him that his boy could handle the job while he was gone. And we ran out of material. And um, so there was, I don't know why, but I didn't have my work truck or I didn't have his work truck, um, but we needed more material. And so we had this big white dump trailer. Here it is. Here's a picture of, the, of, of what kind of the dump trailer looked like. And so I needed to get more sand. So here's my sand in the dump trailer. I mean, what could go wrong? A dump trailer full of sand and a lifted truck. I mean, you know, nothing's gonna go wrong, right? So I go up to Boulder city, go to the sand and gravel pit. And here's a reenactment of my trip back into Henderson. Yeah, there it is. And wipe out. (laughs) That was me. Yeah, (laughs) that is not me, but that's a reenactment basically of that that event. Okay, so I am wiped out on the freeway, right? Sand is everywhere. Here's exactly what happened. I start to feel the the thing sway like that. And I put on the brake, which is I guess the worst thing to do, but like really, what is your option? Put on the gas. Like, and then flying to Las Vegas, right? So I don't have very many options. Um, and the thing swings and hits this side of my truck and then swings this way and hits this other side. The windows are blasted out, right? I'm not kidding you. I feel like there's something in my truck holding me though. I, I told everyone that later. I was like, I felt like there was this like angel in there. Like just, because honestly, when I find, okay, at one point I look out the window and I literally see my tire roll past my truck like I was like, well, oh, that can't be good, right? I'm sliding to a stop on the freeway. Finally, I kick the door open, like you know, some superhero, you know, like bust the door open. You'll get out, and literally, it's like destroyed. My truck is destroyed, but I don't hit anyone else. I just hit the guardrails and destroy my truck. So it is a single car accident, which is kind of rare, right? And so um, the the. Traffic comes to a stop. Eventually the highway patrol show up and, and I'm cited. I'm cited for um, destroying my own truck, right? And so um, somebody says, hey, Brad, you know, that's really terrible and sad. And, and probably if you went to the court, uh, the judge would find pity on you for being so dumb and you wouldn't, get, you wouldn't have to pay the ticket on top of like everything else you have to pay for because your truck is destroyed. So um, I'm standing in front of this judge and I'm waiting my turn and the guy that's in front of me has just made him angry. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know? And I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just gonna say, hey, you know, I was just an idiot and I'm sorry, and my truck is destroyed, but can you wave the ticket? But I just hear like him get upset with the guy right in front of me, I think, thanks, buddy. Like, thanks for warming him up for me, right? Like, and so now I'm, uh, you know, it's my turn. you Blakely, you know, I'm like, oh, gee. And I, and I'm telling you, even though I have like a relatively minor offense, right? Like the first word out of my mouth I wanted to say is, dude, I'm just guilty. Like I'm guilty, right? Like I, I mean, I was just like, and the feeling of standing in front of an authority figure that he's gonna now sentence me or judge me, you know? I was like, man, how, how do people, how must people feel that are on charges that are like criminal, right? And then of course, I'm thinking of like, the ultimate judge. And even though he was very lenient and he said, yeah, you're, you're an idiot, I, you don't have to pay the ticket. Like that was really nice, right? But like the, the truth is I'll, I'll never forget the feeling of just being in front of a judge and, and realizing that I'm about to hear a sentence that I really can't control. And that's exactly how the book of Revelation opens. We're gonna look at this 10 foot tall Jesus today. And we're going to get back to Matthew 25 or 24, 25 next week. But I want to open up Revelation for us. And I want us to look at this carefully. Uh, let's, let's, let's start with uh, chapter one, verse one. It says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Now this word revelation, it comes from the Greek word apocalypse or apocalypsis. And it, it simply means unveiling. And this is gonna be really key for what you should be expecting from Revelation, the, 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 the vision that John gets. Again, we want maybe some more from Revelation than we actually get, but what we get is really important, okay? What, what this unveiling is, is it's a peek behind the curtain. It's a, it's a, it's a message to a group of Christians who are being persecuted it's a message of hope. It's a message of hang in there. It's a message that the king is at war and he will win. There's a cosmic battle that's, that's raging in the heavens. And I'm gonna give you a sneak, a sneak peek behind the curtain to see what's actually happening in this cosmic theater of good versus evil and the lamb that was slain, but then conquers by his blood. Can I get an amen to that? That's who our, that's who our king is. And so the book of Revelation isn't meant, like I said earlier, to give you a detailed roadmap of the future. It's meant to give you a sneak peek behind the, the curtain so that when things on earth seem crazy, when things on earth don't seem to add up, and, and, you, and like if Jesus is king, then why am I suffering? When those questions come, it's the peek behind the curtain that give you comfort to stay faithful to the lamb who was slain because he's gonna win. And if you keep that in your mind, every time you read through Revelation, you're remembering that's the purpose. That's the purpose. Let's let's get into what John says a few verses later. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. You know, John is writing to Christians who are being persecuted and under affliction and and he's writing as one who himself is being persecuted and having to endure patiently. John is fa- a faithful believer writing to other faithful believers. He's a persecuted Christian writing to other persecuted Christians. And he's gonna tell them about what he saw on one Sunday. And that's in verse 10. It says, "I was on the Lord, in the Lord's day, I was, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. That phrase on the Lord's day is a, is a reference to Sunday. And it's probably a subtle dig at Caesar because Caesar prided himself on being Lord. He would call himself Lord. And, and the Christians are, are just shaking their head. nobody, you are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. And on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit caught up to heaven. And I saw a vision that I'm commanded to write to these seven churches. And so, uh, no matter how many times Caesar trumpeted his, his glories and his honors, the Christians would just shake their head in disgust. You are not who you claim to be, Caesar. You are a pretender to the throne. You are not king of kings. There's only one king of kings and his name is Jesus. So I was on the Lord's day and I was, I was in the spirit and I heard a voice behind me that sounds like a trumpet. And then look what he says, sees verse 11, which said, this voice that sounds like a trumpet, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so he's, John is given this instruction um, to write what he's about to see. So he hears this, he's in this like trance-like state. He hears this voice and he's told to get a scroll and start to write what he sees. Um, but here's what's interesting. This happens a lot in the book of Revelation. So he turns now to, because something has caught his attention. So he turns to now look at what he heard, right? And this happens a lot, right? You, you hear something in Revelation, but then you turn to see what you heard, but what you see doesn't match what you heard. And when he turns, instead of seeing like a person or seeing like, a, uh, like some kind of angelic being, what he sees is the voice that was speaking to me, and I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. So now he sees talking lampstands, right? Like what? I don't know if this is Alice in Wonderland or what, right? But this kind of gives you a little bit of like, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting like this, the picture of, of how the book works, right? There are images in the book of Revelation. There are symbols in the book of Revelation that are designed to draw you into a world of, as my professor calls, a world of, of where the wild things are, right? A world of, of um, cosmic images and symbols that represent things on earth. And so he sees seven golden lampstands, which we're gonna find in a minute, are these seven churches that this letter is written to. And this letter that John is gonna write is designed to be circulated to all of these churches. So the letter comes through the churches and everyone's gonna read them together and understand this vision together. And again, it's, it's designed to instill confidence in the persecuted, to encourage faithful, I'm sorry, to encourage faithfulness uh, to the persecuted. And so let's look at what happens as, as now he's into this vision. He says, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, <clears throat> dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet was like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This sight is a terrifying sight right? This is the son of man figure that if you're a Bible student in the first century, they would have kind of understood some of the prophecies is a reference to this figure in Daniel chapter seven, this ancient of days figure. In fact, Jesus always called himself the son of man to activate this image from Daniel seven, this judge that would one day return. Do you remember when Jesus was brought before Caiaphas? And he was silent before Caiaphas and Caiaphas got frustrated because Caiaphas is trying to land a charge on Jesus sufficient for an execution. Remember this is at the very last of his life. And finally Caiaphas says, swear by God, are you the Messiah? Are you the the son of the living one is how he puts it. And and Jesus' response says essentially, Yeah, but it's worse than you think, Caiaphas. I'm actually the cloud rider son of man who's coming in judgment and you're gonna see me in my glory. That's what Jesus says to Caiaphas. Yeah, that's what he says. Then Caiaphas like rips his clothes and like, oh my gosh, you know, he's guilty, right? So you guys know that story, right? This image is activating that from Daniel seven and the words of Jesus in front of Caiaphas. And so when you see this, let's read the last part of the description. In his right hand, there were seven stars. Out of his mouth uh, was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its brilliance. That's my 10-foot tall Jesus. Can I get an amen to 10-foot tall Jesus? Who's glad we're on his side, <laughs> okay. right? I'm telling you, yeah. I think the way John responds, you're gonna see in a second is entirely appropriate. Uh, Alan Johnson, here's what uh, scholar Alan Johnson says when he's he's contemplating this, this image in the first chapter of Revelation. He says, the figure points definitely to divine judgment. If you have a vision and you're caught up to the heavens and that's the first thing you see, here's what you know. It's about to get real. <laughs> the 10 foot tall Jesus is on the move. That's what you realize. Whoa, and here's my image of it. Yeah, Don't th- thank you guys. Yeah, that's it. Like that's gonna haunt your nightmares tonight, right? Like, whoa, right? The double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, the eyes of fire purifying what he sees, evaluating the churches. Here's what's interesting. This 10 foot tall Jesus, he's gonna walk among these candlesticks. John, you gotta love this. I I love it. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Like, yeah, like you see a grizzly bear? Dude, just play dead, right? Like, yeah, good move, John, because I don't know what else you do. Like just drop before the 10 foot tall Jesus. But I love what happens next. He says, then he placed his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. John, you're one of my allegiant ones. You're one of my faithful. John, you don't need to fear this image of judgment because I've taken all of your sins away. Come on, I've broke the power of sin and debt. It was my blood that was shed to wipe away all the sin debt that you had. You don't need to be afraid, John, but those who don't know me, they're gonna need to be afraid. Those who are not allegiant to the lamb, they're gonna have to mess with the 10 foot tall Jesus and they're not gonna wanna wrestle with him because he's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. John, don't be afraid. And I love what Jesus says next to John. He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. That's That's a title for Yahweh. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He goes on, he says this, he says, I'm the living one. I was dead, now look, I'm alive. And I'm alive forevermore. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. You know, let me tell you this, if you're a persecuted group, and some of your church has already been killed for their faith, it's pretty good news to hear that the 10 foot tall Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. Aren't you glad to hear that? That your sister, your brother, your friend, your, whoever was faithful and died for their faith has, is in a kingdom that will never end. And that the one who owns that kingdom has the keys to death and hell, and he's gonna release us from death and rise us all from the dead. That's really good news to hear on the front end of a book that's meant to encourage faithfulness. Are you guys with me this morning? We're a little quiet today, yeah. Yeah, I just told you some really good news that Jesus has the keys to death, right? And you're gonna be released from death because Jesus has paid our sin debt. So let's roll into now the next part of this vision. So John sees this 10 foot tall Jesus and John is now gonna be told to write a letter to these seven churches. These seven churches that are all in modern Turkey And they're all within close proximity to each other. Some of these churches are in cities that are large, like Ephesus and Pergamum. Others are in smaller towns. But what's really interesting is that before before Jesus takes on the dragon, before Jesus wipes out the the beast, before Jesus kicks out the Antichrist, before Jesus defeats the false prophet in the book of Revelation, before he does any of that, Jesus begins with his allegiant ones. He begins walking through the churches first. This echoes what, what really Peter says in chapter four. He says, he says this, 1 Peter chapter four, he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And that's exactly what you see over and over in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets, many times, they would speak to the the Jewish people and call them to covenant faithfulness. You know, many times they're not speaking to the Gentile nations who are far away from God. You have a few examples like Jonah with Nineveh and those other cases, but most of the time the Jewish prophets are calling Israel back to faithfulness. And you see that same tradition here. As the 10 foot tall Jesus walks through the, the lampstands, of these churches. And he's gonna write some specific things to each of these Christians. To, to He's gonna address the collective and he's gonna address the individual. And I wanna look at these. Uh, and as we start to look at these, we're just gonna look at two quickly today. I wanna to ask these questions. I want these questions to be in your mind as we, as we teach through some of these little letters that we see in chapter two and chapter three. Here's the first question. Are we, are we faithful to the Lamb? Is the church at Lake Mead faithful to the Lamb? In our context, we're gonna end here. Here's the second one. Am I faithful to the Lamb? Am I faithful to the Lamb? So let's, let's dive in. Here's the meat of today. We're in chapter two. And we're gonna look at what Jesus writes to the first church at Ephesus. Here's what he says. Chapter two. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lamp stands. Here's what he says. I know your deeds, this is to Ephesus. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate w- wicked people and that you've tested those who've claimed to be pro- apostles, but are not, and you have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my namesake and have not grown weary. So up into this point, point there's a lot of commendation and you're gonna see that in these letters, right? Jesus will, he will commend faithfulness, but he will correct compromise. He will commend it when the church is being faithful. He'll point out, hey, I know what you're doing. I, love, I highlighted the word know in this because it's, it's, it's a clue that Jesus is not far away. He's walking in the church. He's aware of what they're doing. He isn't distant like a deist God. He's in the midst of the church and he knows intimately what they're doing and how they're being and if they're faithful or if they're compromising. So he's commending, he's commending faithfulness. But then the, the story kind of switches here. And look what he says next. He says in verse four, he says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. You know, Ephesus was known as Jesus uh, commends for holding to the truth, for testing doctrine, for checking out everybody who would come through and teach. And some of these uh, itinerant preachers were apostles or they claimed to be apostles. And they were like, wait a second, let me, what are you saying? What are you, ta- what are you really teaching as you travel through? Because apostles were traveling to preachers. Now, what are you really saying? Let me evaluate your message. And if they found that their message wasn't in line with the tradition of the elders and the tradition of the church, they would say, listen, you're teaching false doctrine. They had no problem, listen, they had no problem evaluating the truth claims of different people. But something happened probably in all their wrestling with all that they faced as a church that was was pressured. They stopped loving people well. Man, I was thinking about that for us as a culture, us as a church, the church of of the United States. You know, it's been said, we're we're no more for what we're against than for who we're for. You know, as we have these culture wars that rage in the country, it's easy to just get all into into the mix. And what comes out of our mouth isn't love, it's condemnation. It's judgment. You know, we forgot that we serve a man who is known as a friend of sinners. He didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And he didn't shy away from speaking the truth. So it's possible to be faithful to truth and to be loving to your enemies. It's possible to tell someone what they need to hear and not make them feel demeaned and condemned. You can do both. You can hold them in tension. Paul wrote these words, if I, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Paul wrote in Romans that even when we were Christ's enemies, he died for us. And I think that the church at Ephesus forgot that what their chief responsibility is, is to represent God well, to love people well. And in loving people well, you can tell them the truth. Let me say, many of us are, we need to flip it around and lead with love and not truth. We can always give people truth, but when we lead with truth and we forget love, the thing that happens is we give someone a bloody nose and they're not ready to listen to anything else we have to say because we didn't lead With love. I think the reason why people were attracted to Jesus is they knew that he would accept them fully how they were. And by joining Jesus, he would lead them on a path of repentance and transformation. It's so important that we don't flip that around. And the church at Ephesus forgot that. And so he goes on, he has some strong words, and then we'll move to one more church. He says, Consider how far you've fallen, repent. And do the things you did at first. Start loving people again. He says, if you don't repent, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Friend, I don't know exactly what that means, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> I do not want Jesus to remove our lampstand. I wanna keep shining in Henderson. Can I get amen to that? Amen. So don't forget to love people. That's what he's saying. There's a, several churches. There's seven of them. And I'm not gonna have time to go through all seven. I want you to do your own study. We're gonna look at one more though. But, and I'm gonna highlight, this is kind of an opposite, like so point, counterpoint. So Ephesus um, didn't love people well, but they had their doctrines straight, okay? This church, they, are, they love people well, but they're gonna struggle with doctrine. Look at this one. This is gonna be Thyatira. This is a little bit later. This is to that church. I know all the things you do. Again, he's aware of what they're doing. I have seen your love and your faith and your service. Like you are loving people well, I've seen that. Good job, that's commending faithfulness, right? Your patient endurance. And I can see your constant improvement in all these things, I can see that. But here's that correction. And many of these letters have both, right? Commendation and correction, here's here's the correction. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman Jezebel that that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and eat food offered to idols. Now, this is a very kind of cryptic message, but the audience would have understood clearly. Let me try to untangle this. tira, this letter is written to this group and it was known for its um, it's, it's smelting, okay? They, they were smelters, okay? So they would they had these trade associations uh, where they would smelt copper and bronze. That was what they were known for. And if you wanted to be a part of the smelting guild, okay? If you wanted to join Smelters Union 105, I don't know what it was, okay? Um, it, it's, it's really kind of odd. Again, we're going back 20 centuries. In order to be a part of the guild, you had to join their... their their worship of Apollo Tyroneus. It was the patron god of smelters, okay? So their their mascot was the god Apollo Tyroneus. And and what you would do is you would go to their meals and you would offer sacrifices to the god Apollo Tyroneus. And then you would have the meal and then you would talk business. You would talk business in the meal, And as you talk business, you would be able to trade and make business arrangements, but it was all interwoven into the worship of an idol. And so this is a really tough spot to be if you're a more wealthy Christian. Now the poor Christians, they really weren't in the game anyway, okay? They're really not. But the more wealthy Christians who wanted to make an income in Thyatira knew you had to go along to get along. You had to be a part of this to be in the business world. And that was a temptation, that was a struggle. And it seems like there was someone in the church that was teaching that it was okay to just kind of go along to get along in this area. Not only that, there are these bathhouses all over the Roman world in these Roman cities. And in these bathhouses, you have all kinds of sexual sin happening. And in addition to that, at the same time, you're doing your, you're, you're move, moving and shaking, meeting people, making business transactions, but you're doing it in a bathhouse. And I'll keep a rule of PG in here, but it's really, really messy. It's like doing a business deal at a strip club. Like this is kind of like, and if you're an allegiant one to Jesus, you know that you're not supposed to be there conducting that kind of business in that kind of situation. And you're constantly being pressured to compromise. I, uh, I have a picture of me at a bathhouse, old bathhouse, not current bathhouse. Here he is. <laughs> Michelle's like Brad, why are you doing these selfies? I don't know. I just want to show you. I was there. I was actually there. And so this is what it was. They would put a, a, a wall or a floor over this, and they would heat the room up, and it would be like a sauna. And then there would be a heated pool, and there's prostitution, and there's all kinds of things happening. And if you want to be a part of the business world, that's what you did. There's application, isn't there, to today. It might be 20 centuries ago, but listen to what was written. I didn't share this in the first service, but they found some graffiti on the wall of one of the bathhouses. Here's what, what, just gives you a little window. Baths, drink, and sex corrupt our bodies, but bath, drink, and sex make life worth living. What happens in the bath house? It's not a lot different. Our brothers and sisters had to ask themselves hard questions about what allegiance to Jesus meant in their context. And we have to ask ourselves the same hard questions. What does allegiance to Jesus mean? Where are your temptations? Where is the enemy and the evil one? Where's the beast pressuring you? You know, I think the church in the United States, I wanna speak generally, and I wanna speak like on the individual. We're in a new age in the United States. 30 years ago, I think a lot of the norms of our country we're closer to biblical morals, but today things have sh- shifted. I think pastors, church leaders are under pressure and it's similar, right? To go along, to get along. Hey, some topics just don't talk about. And if you just don't talk about them, if you just don't call it wrong, you'll be okay. But if you dare call it out, let me say guys, we have to, be faithful to the lamb. In the area of sexual ethics, the Bible's really clear, sexual behavior, sexual activity happens between a covenant union of a husband and a wife, a male, and a female. Sex outside of that context is wrong. And I wanna say it in the most loving way. I love you, but I can still say that's wrong. I have to be faithful to the lamb. There are countries where that statement could make you in prison, right? That's where our world is going. And friends, should we be surprised? Again, we expect peace when we're promised war. Why are we surprised that the beast is trying to silence the church? Can I give an amen on that? Why are we surprised? that we're told to just go along to get along. Why are we, why are we surprised at the pressure? See, that's a problem with the American church. We've lived way too long thinking that the United States government is identical to the church of Jesus. Let me tell you something, I don't care who's in the White House, Jesus is on the throne. I'm li- uh, Listen, that's not a political statement. I'm not trying to be political, I'm trying to be faithful because I don't care if you're a Democrat, I don't care if you're a Republican. The problem with the Church of the United States is we've been thinking Washington DC can change our lives and it can't. We cannot legislate change. Jesus changes people, not Washington. And another thing, we gotta stop outsourcing help. When people need help, they should not keep looking to the government. They should look to Jesus because he's the one that can help them. Yeah. Friend, this is our problem. We've been lulled to sleep as Americans. We've been lulled to sleep in this way. And I think the, the, the one, the son, of man is walking among the lampstands and he's evaluating the fruit of American churches. And he's asking, hey, how, are you ready to wake up? He actually says those very words to the church at Sardis. You wanna check it out later, you can. He says, you better wake up, you are dead. He says that, Read it yourself. I'm kind of fired up about this. But I wanna, I wanna talk to you personally now and it's this question, it's like, okay, the church and all of our, what about me? Where am I at? And here's the question, like, in what ways are you tempted to compromise in your own life? You know, I think maybe if Jesus were writing a letter to us or to you or to me personally, he'd say, Brad, you're far too distracted with the things of this world. Only one thing is necessary. And Mary's chosen the good part, you know the story? You're too overcome with worry, Brad. Brad, stop worrying. I've got this. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added to you. Or maybe it's this, you're just so consumed with making money. You have bought into the American prosperity lie that money is your God. I am your God, I'll provide. I don't care what's written on your money because I don't think it's in God we trust, right? Sometimes it's like, guys, we, if, listen, if our boss calls, right, versus the pastor calls, who are we listening to? Come on, I'm really getting, really getting nosy now, aren't I, right? Like, oh, Brad. don't you talk about my job. I'm gonna talk about your job. Listen, can I, can I preach this morning? Guys, listen, you're not gonna stand in front of your boss one day. You're gonna stand before the one with the sword coming out of his mouth one day. Who are you allegiant to? Finally, I'm done. We have to stop pursuing comfort at all costs at the expense of calling. Because at the end of your life, do you wanna say I lived comfortably? Or do you wanna say I lived a calling? That I was faithful to the one who was faithful for me. He's calling you. Some of us just need to repent this morning. We do, we just, we're gonna stand in front of the temple, foot Jesus. We just say, like, God, I'm sorry. Just like he says to Ephesus, repent, I'm gonna repent. I'm gonna turn it over to you right now. Can can we all stand together? We're just gonna end the service this way. We're gonna stand together. Carolina is gonna remind us about this king and we're gonna have an opportunity to pray. And some of you need to, I'm just gonna say it. We all just maybe come forward as an act of surrender to Jesus, and all you're doing by coming forward is, you're just saying, listen, I don't care who's watching me, I'm gonna walk forward and I'm gonna just once again, just Jesus, you are king. If there's something the Spirit's been nudging you about that you know is in conflict with your allegiance, I want you to bring it here. And I just want you, Jesus, I'm laying that down. I'm no longer gonna let something be in conflict with my allegiance. I surrender to you. And so right now I'm just gonna pray, Carolina starts to sing, and I want you just to to move however the spirit leads you. The friend, listen, the, the, the 10 foot Jesus walks through the church before he ever takes on the beast. He's walking through the church. Let's surrender to him again.